The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello there. I'm Quentin Fortrell. I'm the managing editor of uh, Personal Finance at MarketWatch. And together with here with me is Dr. Gregory Poland um, from the Mayo Clinic. Uh, Dr. Poland, welcome and thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Quentin. Oh, my pleasure. So we're here to talk about year three of the pandemic. Epidemiologists are weighing the significance, of course, of the latest Omicron wave, the public's response to it. I'm wondering how, if at all, it could change the trajectory of the pandemic. Now, I want to start, Dr. Poland, by acknowledging that we do have a lot to be grateful for in 2022. Uh, There have been many positive developments. The U.S. has authorized two COVID pills, Pfizer's Paxlovid and Merck's um, Molnupiravir uh, for people who have symptoms and test positive for the for the disease and are at risk of severe illness. Um, we have booster shots. We have more children who are getting vaccinated, which will help prevent community spread and also, of course, help protect teachers in the classroom. Uh, scientists are looking at different ways of developing a freeze drying um, uh, mRNA uh, based COVID-19 vaccines right, to make them more stable, more easily to transport and, um, and store. Uh, the world is breathing a sigh of relief that the Omicron variant at least appears to be less severe, uh, particularly than the Delta variant. variant. Um, but beyond that, uh, my, my fear is that the, the world, bec- and because of that perhaps, that the world is sort of, but at least people in America, some are playing Russian roulette with this virus, particularly the more uh, mild, the milder variant, the Omicron, um, um, which you know the virus is finding new ways to survive, and we're we're suffering from COVID fatigue, right? And we're we're coping with the ongoing effects of this virus, which continues to blaze uh, a trail throughout the 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 U.S. So, so all that said. Um, we're a little more at ease, Dr. Poland, because we're, we're reading that Omicron, we, get, we, know, we all know somebody who has it if we don't have it ourselves and we're hearing it's less severe. But my question to you is, how is, or how do you think, doc, uh, Dr. Poland, year three of the COVID-19 pandemic will be different from the two years that have preceded it? Well, you've mentioned a lot of them and it's a great question, Quentin. On the one hand, thankfulness. Uh, you know, we prayed for vaccines and antivirals and, and we have them. On the other side of that same coin, and the, 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 the blessing and the curse is almost sort of in tension uh, with one another. We have uh, only about 23 or 4 percent of America fully vaccinated and boosted. Now, part of that is the kids who are too young to get it. But you know, we have significant issues with getting people to take it seriously enough to motivate them to get a vaccine. And then masks. Uh, we, we have a lot of information about masks. 
and I brought some with me today. And later, if we have time, we can we can demonstrate them. But we can't get people to to mask. And so what happens is, and and by the way, to add to your list of blessings, everybody that can hear us is alive. You know, when you think in in America, about eight hundred and seventy five thousand Americans have died of COVID. You know, that's one out of every 100 people over 65, about one out of every 70 or so age 75 and older, one out of 375 of the general population dead of COVID. So, you know, I think I think people are fatigued, as you pointed out, and that fatigue tends to cause them to begin to decrease the seriousness of it. They're more willing to take risks. On top of it, as you mentioned, and it is a fair statement, Omicron is milder. People misinterpret that as mild. Well, it is true that Omicron's about half as likely to land you in the hospital as Delta was, for example, but we have almost three times as many people getting infected. This is a highly contagious, highly transmissible variant. And so the net effect of that is though it's milder by having so many more people infected, we're actually experiencing again, a surge demand on the medical system. Let me put raw numbers on it. We're having just shy of about 800,000 new infections in the U.S. each day. Just under 2,000 people a day are dying. And by the way, the latest model suggests that by mid-March, we may have another 50,000 to 300,000 Americans who will die of, of uh, of this pandemic. We have about 100, just shy of 160,000 people hospitalized in the U.S. Uh, with COVID, 24,000 of them in the ICU and almost 5,000 kids hospitalized with COVID. That's a lot of statistics, but it's in service of recognizing that this is not mild, it's milder Right. Than, than Delta, but by no means a benign virus. Right. I mean, they, they are sobering statistics, Dr. Poland, and it's worth remembering the enormity of this uh, pandemic and the, the extent of the fatalities and, and that there are more to come. Uh, I think, uh, you know, many people are searching in vain to find these at-home COVID tests at local pharmacies. Some are even overpaying for them. Uh, But today, Wednesday, January 19th, uh, marks an important date in that quest. Um, The Biden administration um, uh, has pledged 500 million free at-home test kits for Americans. And and it's recently uh, doubled that pledge. So we also have the federal government's covidtest.gov site, which actually went live yesterday, but it's um, up and running today. Um, so how much of a game changer are these um, free tests and this new wave of, of COVID tests for people to take at home? Yeah, that's a, that's a very insightful question, uh, Quentin. And, and 
thinking about an answer to that, I, I would say they are valuable in a different way than they would have been at the beginning of the pandemic. At the beginning of the pandemic, we had the opportunity to contact trace. Um, that's not possible with almost a million new infections a day. That, that's just off the table. It's not realistic. So now these tests become a way of telling, do I have a minor respiratory virus or do I have COVID-19? Which then informs decisions of, do I go to work? Do I go to school? Do I need to isolate or quarantine? If, if you're uh, an elderly person or somebody with underlying medical conditions, do I seek out monoclonal or antiviral uh, treatment? So, so I think they are helpful. The, there's a couple of practical issues. We're not seeing them. We're not getting them until year three of the pandemic. We should have been prepared. Um, that's, that's one issue. The second issue is there's a whole variety of these at-home tests, and they demonstrate different what are called operating characteristics. So I'll just, I won't name it, but one of the more popular ones, for every 100 tests that would be positive by PCR, this test will pick up about 65 of those. So there will be false negatives, less likely false positives, except if they are treat if they are not stored properly in other words if they freeze or subjected to very high temperatures well what are we doing we're going to mail these what happens if you live in a cold weather place like minnesota and you're on vacation for 3 days and uh, it's about minus 13 out uh, and your test sits at that temperature for two or three days, it may not be as valid as if it had been treated properly. Right. So, and then, you know, the limitation of four, it's something, but many households have more than four people. And there've already been some early issues, uh, for example, in apartment buildings, the post office recognizes it as one address. Um, so, so there's some wrinkles to be worked out. Right. And I, I also want to talk about the reliability just briefly, uh, Dr. Poland. Uh, picture at Dublin, December 2020, New Year's Eve. I was sick. I was, you know, I had an exposure. I had to quarantine and I got sick. I didn't know whether it was a cold or flu or whether it was coronavirus. So I, I took these at-home tests and I took them every day for 10 days and none of them came up positive. So I'm left wondering, did I actually have COVID or did I just have cold or flu? And a lot of people during the winter have been faced with this dilemma. What I've heard is, and I know we've spoken about this in the past, is that if you're vaccinated and you have your booster like I do, that your immune system will recognize hopefully the virus earlier if it is COVID and then fight it. And that fight is what your symptoms are. And that maybe those antigen tests that because you had those symptoms and your immune system kicked into gear so early on in the process that the antigen test, you didn't ever have enough of a viral load of COVID to test positive on these antigen tests, right? Because it wasn't a PCR and then I recovered and I beat it maybe, I maybe I beat yeah. it. So is that possible? Yeah, very, that's a very plausible scenario, uh, Quentin. Uh, it, because you are double vaccinated and boosted, 
your viral load is likely to peak and come down very quickly as opposed to people who are not where it peaks and then a very slow decline over many days. So uh, we, as I said, it, it, the test you had may not have been sensitive. You may have had a very low viral load that you resolved very quickly, or possibly you had influenza or a different virus. So, right. you know, that they're not perfect, but you, you actually did something that's very smart. You tested yourself multiple times across a handful of days or so. And that's what makes up for a lower sensitivity of these tests. One test by itself that's negative may or may not be negative. Multiple tests that are negative begin to increase your confidence that it's either not COVID or it's a very low viral load, which has the effect of decreasing substantially the risk, particularly if you're wearing a mask, that you're going to transmit it to somebody else. So they do have value, though they're not perfect. They're not the gold standard of a PCR. Right. And I had enough warnings to make sure I isolated and I, you know, I didn't expose myself to vulnerable members of my family or people who are immunocompromised or elderly members of my family. So we have a question here from Samir who says, um, travel and future, what is going to change? What is not going to change? So I think we've already seen Dr. Poland a lot that has changed with, um, you know, affidavits, um, proof of vaccination or proof that you've had COVID and you've recovered, wearing masks on planes. Uh, What else do you think um, will change? We've also seen people with with fake, we've heard these stories and yeah. reports of fake COVID tests getting on planes, which, you know, boggles the mind. But what else do you think in terms of travel do you think is going to change in 2022? Well, I, I think it will slowly recover if we don't see another variant. That's a big if. I think the winners are going to be those businesses that take this seriously, whatever that might mean for them and for their customers. For example, U.S. registered airlines have substantially increased the filtering of cabin air, the air exchange rate, the cleaning of the inside uh, of the jets, and that's been very helpful. Um, But the same could be true for restaurants, for other businesses where customers come indoors. There are ways to make it safer. There are ways to make bathrooms safer in in this regard. And as I say, the businesses that win will figure out how to do that. They'll be innovative. I think the, the losers will be people who expect the status quo and informed consumers won't won't put up with it. I think the other thing at a bit more philosophical level is what I'll call the social contract. Uh, In the U.S. and I think around the world, we're wrestling with um, what are the effects of cultural narcissism when it's everything's filtered through the view of me as opposed to the social contract of what responsibility do I have to the community? and to the nation. And that's where discussions about mandatory vaccination, for example, come in, mandatory masking. One of the other changes that I think will happen is um, 
a lot of uh, Asian countries were already doing this to their credit, but during respiratory viral season, people wore masks indoors. I think we'll see a lot more of that going into the into the future. Remember that in some years, one out of uh, every 150 or so uh, older Americans die of influenza. Um, so there, there's warrant for thinking about masking uh, in the winter. So I think we'll see that more and more discussion about that, more discussion about, you know, uh, vaccine passports. Uh, if you know, Even in the past, if you wanted to travel to some countries that had yellow fever virus, you had to prove that you had gotten yellow fever vaccine. So right. this is nothing new. And we've seen, you know, it's been a travel nightmare for millions of Americans mm -hmm. over the holidays, flights being canceled, airline staff getting sick, you know, Delta Airlines were, uh, writing to the CDC to, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, reduce the isolation time so they can get people back to work. Uh, so, uh, you know, we've seen it's been a difficult, it hasn't been an ideal uh, peak travel season by, mm -hmm. by any stretch of the imagination. But we have a, a question here, Dr. Poland from um, Maureen, who wants to talk about herd immunity and whether over the course of the Omicron, because more people, of course, are, are getting a supposedly milder version, even though more people getting infected means uh, still a large number of severely um, ill people, as we've discussed, but she wonders whether that what our chances are of reaching herd immunity in 2022. Now we have a somewhere like a 62% vaccination rate in the U.S. at the moment. We have the spread, supposedly milder Omicron variant that some people think will might maybe I'll get Omicron and then I'll have herd immunity. I'll help with herd immunity, right? <laughs> yeah, right. But a key. We've heard of these, you know, Omicron parties. Oh, so um, how much truth there is to that, I hope very little. But a key tenet of, achieve, of achieving herd immunity is the, you know, separation of those who are at lower risk of dying from the higher risk groups, right? People over 70, 65, with pre, and people with pre-existing conditions, people who have had transplants. Um, so as the, as the lower risk group contracts the virus, immunity is supposedly, you know, spreads in the so-called herd, and that lowers the risk. But, you know, with nearly 40% of the population unvaccinated, and, you know, we know the real world is a lot more notoriously unpredictable than a laboratory, um, I feel that um, herd immunity is probably a bit of a pie in the sky. Uh, we also have asymptomatic spreading, right? That's another Achilles heel that complicates this herd immunity strategy. Um, so I'm skeptical, and I know, I want to hear from you, Dr. Poland, and I know that you have said that each society creates its own pathology. So I'd like to know what you mean by that, and I'd like to know what your predictions are for herd immunity. Yeah, that's actually a, a bit of a quote that comes from a French physician philosopher, Maurice Sendrail, who, who, who noted that, that each society creates its own conditions and therefore its own pathologies. That certainly has played out in the U.S. and uh, at least from what I can see in, in Western Europe. Do I think we're anywhere near herd immunity? No, absolutely not. And unlike other diseases, remember that immunity to the infection 
And so, so in other words, infection-induced immunity and vaccine-induced immunity wane with time. So if I could, so to speak, pour vaccine over the whole globe and get everybody immune inside of a month or so, maybe. But that's not happening. We have 40% of Americans who are eligible for vaccine and boosters who have not gotten them. Uh, when you look in Africa, only about 10% of the population has been immunized. So the, this concept of herd immunity really does not work when you have open borders, you have people who um, uh, don't wear masks, who are not vaccinated, and you have, when you think of it, you've got a hundred different categories of people, immune or not immune, shuffling over time. Uh, and, and it just, those are conditions that do not allow for the establishment of an ongoing immunity of the population. Right. And I'm, I'm glad, Dr. Poland, that you mentioned, uh, you know, the continent of Africa, because I think we should acknowledge that year three will be different for developing countries, you know, versus more developed countries like the U.S. and, and Europe. And, you know, the World Bank's most recent uh, one, a, a recent global economic prospects predicted that 90 percent of advanced economies will regain their pre-pandemic per capita income by 2022. However, only a third um, of low and middle income uh, economies will do so. And, you know, we all know that the pandemic has been much harder on women than it has on men. Women, you know, falling out of the workforce, still taking the burden of, you know, childcare at home. Uh, so there are, we are living in two very different um different worlds, right? Uh, yes. The one we're talking about in the US and we have to acknowledge. And part of that, I suppose, is that in those more vulnerable countries, that's where we may have another, another variant, right? And we've been, you know, more fortunate than we could have been with the Omicron. But in regards to herd immunity and vaccinations in developing countries, that doesn't that leave the virus with an opportunity? Absolutely. Uh, you, you are absolutely correct in this. I mean, let's look at Omicron. Omicron was first identified in, in Botswana and then very quickly spread through South Africa and from there to, to the rest of the world. And I mean, worldwide in weeks, Omicron was not on anybody's radar. So that's just how quickly. And, you know, this is the fifth time we've watched this movie, right? We had right. Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, now Omicron. There's some others waiting in the wings, so to speak, that we're keeping our, our eyes on. And so, you know, the, the old saw is, is kind of true here. Nobody's safe until everybody's safe. Right, right. And I think, um, you know, speaking of uh, economies and uh, developed economies versus um, other economies, I feel that one gauge, at least in the U.S., of the seriousness of any variant, you know, appears to be, uh, and it's a, it's a sad predict, a predictor in a way because it's so unpredictable in itself, but it appears to be the stock market's reaction, right? And I think, you know, the response to Omicron when it first came out was a little rocky, but has been more muted to previous responses to previous variants. Um, 
And now investors are concerned with other headwinds like inflation, which may or may not be partly due to supply issues of, of, of goods and services. So, um, so that's all being played out in the background. But um, stock markets inherently unpredictable and emotional, right, Dr. Bowen? Yes. I mean, just like well, people. Yeah, very, very much so. And and it, you know, going back to societies create their own pathologies. We've done that economically. When your economic outlook is this week, this month, this quarter, then the market acts irrationally and emotionally to news about this, even though in the mid to long term, there's no question there has never been a time when those markets don't recover and indeed thrive. Uh, and, and this relates in part to the difference between you know, passive index uh, investing and active management. Active management exacerbates this. And uh, in fact, um, for all the active managers out there, see if you can uh, collect on Warren Buffett's uh, million dollar bet that you will not beat passive index funding uh, uh, over, the, over the midterm to long term. Right. Uh, we have a question here, uh, Dr. Poland, uh, from Steve, who's asking about uh, that. He said he's hearing that we will move from the pandemic to the endemic this spring. Do you think that's realistic? Do you think it will take more time based on where we're at currently with the number of cases and, you know, of course, the number of fatalities and hospitalizations? I, I think one truism, and I hate that phrase, I can't believe I just used it, but one truism is that that we are learning to live with this virus, right? Uh, and, and it's sort of like, I, I guess we're, it's already endemic in, in, that, in, in that case. But, uh, but what do you say, Dr. Poland? Well, uh, first of all, I'd like to sort of start a bit at the philosophical and work down. Healthy humans and healthy societies are inherently adaptable and resilient. And so we're finding that. Of course, there are groups and uh, areas where that is not true. And that's, that's a different uh, uh, issue. In terms, in terms of the movement from pandemic to endemic, I would say, generally speaking, we do not understand the biologic, immunologic, and virologic rules by which that happens. Now, one exception is when we have a monotypic stable virus, let's take measles, the most contagious virus we know, that is a stable virus. It doesn't change. We don't have variants of it. So even when we immunize over decades, we're increasing that herd immunity and, and it works. And so it becomes uh, from, from epidemics to endemic to uh, eliminated in the US and we're hoping one day eradicated. Will that happen with coronavirus? No, it will not. And the reason for it is um, we are not yet on, at any stage where we could predict endemicity. We're not going to eradicate it. We have an animal reservoir now. White-tailed deer in the US are infected with SARS-CoV-2, for example. And so uh, let me make a prediction, uh, which will be hard for any of you to hold me to because we'll all be dead by then. But your great, great, great grandchildren 
will still be getting immunized against coronavirus. How can I even say such a thing? If you got your flu vaccine this fall, you were immunized against a um, strain of influenza that showed up in 1918 and caused that pandemic. So we're, we are in no time soon rid of this virus. Now, may it decrease just like it did in the previous two years over the summer? Quite likely. Will it likely go back up? When you get to an endemic, you're in a situation where you have low-level circulation that's predictable with maybe seasonal blips or epidemics up like flu. Your great, great, great grandchildren are getting immunized against coronavirus. That's uh, that's a sobering thought. Uh, I know that uh, we have another question here from Wesley about people being more reckless, you know, and feeling more comfortable maybe as well, going back, socializing, going back to their everyday lives. And we've sort of covered this, but I just wanted to add that, you know, we've seen a lot of peer-reviewed papers about the widespread impact on human organs that have been infected, lung, brain, heart, um, and even though it's just a mild infection, there could be subclinical damage to your body. And that, you know, it's, it's worth knowing that there's a lot still about this virus that we don't, we are not aware of. And I wanted to, you know, really emphasize that point before we, we move to your mask demonstration. Yeah. I'm really glad that you brought this up, Quentin, because it's, it's one that I wrestle with with the media, with patients, with colleagues. Um, let, me, let me think of it as a, as a teeter-totter. And what is in tension here are the risks and benefits of wearing a mask and getting vaccinated versus the risks and benefits, if there are any, of getting infected. What happens, and let's just imagine a horizontal line and you and I are standing in the center of it. When Quentin gets immunized and boosted, he's moved way over to the far side so that his infection is likely to be either asymptomatic or trivial. Let's say I decide not to get the vaccine or boosted. I move way over to the opposite side and now run the risks of infection. And those are considerable. When people say, oh, my infection was mild, they've run the risk of long COVID, they've run the risk of complications, and now several studies emerging showing widespread infection of organs, probably with subclinical organ damage to the heart, to the lungs, to the testes, to a variety of organs, including the brain. Are we going to see a spate of early neurodegenerative disease like we did after the 1918 influenza pandemic? Um, other studies showing that in men and women, that infection leads to the development of autoantibodies. In other words, antibodies against our own tissues, not the vaccine, the infection. What will be the consequence of that? So so there's a whole host of risks that one undertakes with infection, whereas you undertake teeny, barely quantifiable risks with vaccination. All right. 
And I wanted to end with your mass demonstration and also note that there, there's more news uh, as well out. Um, the Biden administration is expected to announce plans to make 400 million N95 masks available, free at pharmacies, community health centers across uh, the, the country. Uh, in early February, the Wall Street Journal reported, citing a house, White House official um, and experts are saying this would be the biggest deployment of personal protective equipment in hu U.S. history, mm -hmm. um, uh, perhaps. So um, single layer cloth masks may not be enough to protect against Omicron because, you know, it settles in the upper respiratory tract, which is why one of the reasons it's made it more, much more infectious. Um, and these high filtration masks like N95s are, experts say, your best bet. So... No. With that said, Dr. Poland, I believe you're going to do a mass demonstration, keeping in mind that this will also become a podcast. So you might have to talk your way through it as well. Oh, thank you for that cue. Yes. yes. So, so the least effective mask is a cloth mask and a single layer mask uh, at best stops large mucus particles, but does nothing to stop aerosolized virus. The next best is a so-called paper surgical mask which, which is put over the ears. But the important issue is that there should be no gapping around the nose. It should be above the nose, not below it, or not on the chin, and no air coming in from the sides or underneath. The next best mask is a KN95 mask. Same thing, this has to go across the nose and tight so that air is not coming in around the sides of it. The most effective non, uh, you know, there, there are certain personal respiratory systems you can wear, but the most effective mask is an N95. They're also the least comfortable to wear. And here's what an N95 looks like, has a molded nose piece, uh, double bands, and this is held very tightly across the uh, face with no, effectively forming a seal. You can even tell by my voice. Look at the difference when I talk right. with this versus when I try to talk through this. Much right. less air is moving. So the key thing is at least wear a paper surgical mask. Be sure it's crimped around the nose and tight enough. When you're going to crowded indoor uh, settings, I personally would wear a KN95 mask. You can go onto the CDC or FDA website so you avoid buying counterfeit masks. And the least comfortable but most effective is the actual N95. Right. So the K95 are those white pointy conical type Correct. masks. Correct. For those who yes. can't see it. And the, the N95 is that big purple blue number, which looks Correct. almost like a snorkel. Yes. Very large. The KN95s are, are quite comfortable to wear. No problem with those. And then the paper are those blue. Those yes. That we you see people wearing. You're right. There's a lot of... I, I didn't know that. I'm going to be honest about having to press down the area around the nose and the side of the ears to make sure it's... it's Because it's hard to do with that paper mask. And the other, the other thing about the masks is that they're built in a certain way. If the outside is blue and the inside is white, be sure the blue is pointing outward, not, not wearing it inside out. Right. And I see so many people wearing it below their nose or with big gaps around their nose. They have effectively substantially diminished their own self-protection. 
Well, I, you know, I think that was very helpful because I thought I knew everything there was to know about mask wearing, you know, but clearly there's always more to learn. Dr. Poland, thank you so much for your time and for being here. And thank you to the audience for tuning in. We got to a large portion of your questions, but not all. But please do join us tomorrow. Baron Senior Managing Editor uh, Lauren Rublin and Deputy Editor Alex Yule will discuss the outlook for tech companies and individual stocks. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy and have a wonderful rest of your day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.